When Rand and Robin Miller and the team at Cyan were wrapping up their first video game geared towards adults, they weren't even sure how it was going to be received. Their graphic adventure game titled Mist was something that they had never made before. They weren't even sure who they were making it for. At best, they hoped to sell 100,000 copies. Well, it doubled that in its first six months, and that was before it was ever even brought to Windows computers. Once it was released for Windows PCs, it kept selling more and more and more, sitting as the best-selling PC game for 54 months. What made Myst so popular? And what did it contribute to video game history? Well, we'll talk about that and more as we take today's trip for the ages down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 160th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we'll tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person. It just has to be relevant to this week and can be whatever I want past that. Well, telling you its story, we hope to teach you something new about it what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about Myst, the graphic adventure game originally released in 1993 for the Macintosh. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is amazing at nonverbal storytelling. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, why don't you give our listeners a little taste of your nonverbal storytelling excellence? I really, I really felt you on that one. 100% felt you on that one. Good job. That was excellent. Thank you. That was excellent. I, I can relate. So, uh, back to the verbal storytelling. What have you been playing this past week? Well, Dave, this week has seen a little bit of Rocket League, a little bit of RuneScape, and a little bit of Starfield. Nice. Did you like Starfield so far? Uh, you said it was stuttery, didn't you? So I enjoy when I am able to play it and it performs well, but there are a lot of performance issues that I have with my machine. So there's a lot of scenes where it would just kind of freeze up. It would take a couple like 30 seconds or more to actually like load up or to sync back up with the audio and the video. Um, but when it does work, it is a very enjoyable game. I'm really enjoying it. I just hope that I can find the issue and you know, if it's a thing on my end, you know, maybe I need an upgrade and just haven't figured it out or if there's something they can do to optimize it. That, that's the only hope I have right now. I haven't played enough to give it more of a review, though. Fair enough. So that's it for me, though. What about yourself, Dave? What have you been playing this week? Well, we played Rocket League as usual. Yeah. And I've also played Tears of the Kingdom and Starfield. That was pretty Ooh. much my week. And so. how do you like those two games? I'm enjoying both of them. I'm really liking Tears of the Kingdom. I'm I'm really liking Tears of the Kingdom. I think it's a fantastic game. Yeah, I know you're already farther than me. (laughs) Starfield isn't. It's not bad. It's just I I don't know. It's a lot of game. And like it's like sometimes when the games are that big, I get lost in the size of them. 
because I just, it, you know, it's like, a, ooh, shiny, ooh, shiny, ooh, shiny. And then I find myself doing all these side things and it kind of loses its its continuity, if that makes sense. Well, my suggestion for that is just go do the main storyline. True statement. You're right. I know that. But I don't hate it. I, I mean, I do like it. I got to be in the mood for one or the other. Like, I, you know, I, there, there, there are times I want to play because they're two different very styles of games, you know? Very true. It just depends on what I'm in the mood for. I've I've been playing more Tears of the Kingdom though because it's portable. I can I can kind of t- I've been taking that with me with all the other crap I've had going on. So I've been playing more of that, admittedly. But I'm really enjoying it, and I'm enjoying how they're tying it to Breath of the Wild because there are some there there are ways in that the two come together other than being in the same place, and I I'm getting a kick out of that. Right on, Dave. So mist today we're learning about mist, which I know you don't know. No, that's the stuff that uh, like when water is very fine droplets. Yes, that's exactly what mist is. You got me. You got me. Yeah. So Rand Miller had been programming games as a junior high school student uh, in the 1980s. Sooner, in fact, he one of his first games called Swarmed earned him second place at the National Student Computer Fair in 1976. His brother Robin wasn't quite so programming-oriented. In fact, he wasn't at all. His interest was more artistic. He was into music. He was into arts. And so growing up, there was, I think, six or seven years between the brothers, and they just kind of had different interests. But as adults, they found themselves finding common ground when Apple released what's known as the HyperCard system. So HyperCard was originally released in 1987, and it was one of the world's first what we call hypermedia systems. Hypermedia is basically what the World, War- world Wide Web, what the Internet is before there was a World Wide Web. It's like the way to present information that's not just text. It would include graphics and audio and video Plain text could be found alongside links that would take you to these various things, which I mean, saying that now that's just so common, but like early computers didn't have, I mean, they didn't even have mice to click on something like that. Wasn't a thing back then being able to just have all the information in front of you that you could navigate so easily. It was, it was just something brand new when HyperCard came out in 87. No joke, HyperCard was created by a well-known computer engineer. His name was Bill Atkinson, and he created it after an LSD trip. Wow. And if you don't know Bill Atkinson, you should probably look him up. He was, quick summary, the principal designer and developer of the graphical user interface on the Apple Lisa, which is pretty much the first computer that ever had a graphical user interface. First personal computer. I'm sure there were some inner like terminals that had it, but... The Lisa was the first like home computer that had a GUI. He was also the creator of Mac Paint, creator of QuickDraw, uh, pretty much everything graphical on the early Apples, which beat the Windows computers to graphics, came from Bill Atkinson. And without spending too much more time on him, since he's not the topic of our episode today, I thought I would just leave you with a few other things that, has, that he's contributed to the entire field of computing as a way to entice you to go look him up. He also invented the double click of the mouse, 
and he invented the menu bar. So this man invented things that you inevitably interact with every single day. Never, never touch one of those. True statement. Here, though, in 1987, he invented the HyperCard. It was basically an easy-to-use development kit that allowed users to, like, bring different types of media together. It's really like PowerPoint, even before PowerPoint is a good way to think about it, because, like, HyperCard was called that because it was set up as a series of cards, and on those cards you could, like, have multimedia and link to other cards. So think of cards as slides, if that's easier for you. In HyperCard, the Miller brothers, they saw an opportunity to bring their different interests together. Rand had his programming, Robin had his music and art, and to this end, they founded a company called Cyan Productions later that year in 1987. Their first project was a children's adventure game. It was called The Manhole. (laughs) Interesting. In which the player opens a manhole, you know, like a sewer manhole. And reveals a giant be- a gigantic beanstalk, which leads them to a fantastic world. So they found a beanstalk in the manhole. That's yeah, exactly. Okay. It was, manhole was originally released on floppy disks in nineteen eighty-eight, but in nineteen eighty-nine, mm-hmm. Activision produced it as a CD-ROM version. And fun little trivia fact for you all. Manhole, the CD-ROM version, has the notable distinction of being the first ever entertainment game ever distributed on cd-rom little trivia night fact for you first cd-rom video game ever i say video game because there were things on cd-rom like encyclopedias before that but manhole was the first computer entertainment game also before anyone jumps on me i said computer game for a reason there were games prior to that that were released on cd-rom for the pc engine which on state sign we knew as the turbo graphics 16 The CD-ROM expansion for the PC Engine was released in late 1988, and there were a few CD games that were released for it. So those were the first console games that were released on CD-ROM, and the first computer game ever released on CD-ROM was The Manhole. So Cyan Productions' next title was another children's graphic adventure game named Cosmic Osmo and the Worlds Beyond the Mackerel. This was released in 1989. Uh, Cosmic Osmo allows players to ride a spaceship and visit various planets. It wasn't serious about it. It was a humorous game that had popular culture references for kids. For instance, in it, you can find an album by a band called Swabs and Roses. Cute giggle. In 1991, Cyan produced an educational point-and-click computer game called Spelunks. Spelunks, which is, you know, they got from the word spelunking. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I know. Collection of rooms, all connected by a series of tunnels, hence spelunking. Each room contains interactive minigames and experiments, most of which introduce players to a specific field of knowledge. So, you know, each room taught kids something different. And in the midst of all of these developments, the development of all these children's titles, the Millers kind of began to have an itch to do something more geared towards adults, but they really weren't sure where to start. They had some lofty goals as they sat down and thought about it, about what game they kind of game they wanted to make. They wanted to include believable characters. They wanted to produce a nonlinear story. They wanted to put the players in a role that would allow them to make ethical choices that would affect the game. 
so these were all kind of interesting things for the time. So they went to Activision and they pitched Activision a game called The Grey Summons, which included all of these concepts. And Activision's told them to stick to children's games. Damn. I know, right? Now, at this point, Cyan and the brothers, they really weren't doing well financially. I mean, children's games were cool, but I mean, we know that children's games are kind of a limited market even to this day. Uh, that might not be true since that family games are a much bigger thing. But back then, you had like the Oregon Trail and the World in the World's Carbon San Diego's of the world, and they just weren't big sellers. So the Miller brothers were like on a diet of rice, beans, and government cheese at that point. That all changed in 1991. They were working with a company called Sunsoft. Sunsoft was funding the conversion of Manhole into Japanese. And Sunsoft came to the Miller Brothers with the request that they had been looking for. Namely, we want you to make something for adults. And so the design of what would become Mist started in 1991. In a later interview, Rand Miller said, I was more of a gamer than Robin, but both of us settled with Mist on the idea that, well, let's not have people die and start over because that irritated both of us. We felt like we were building a real world, and in a real world, you just don't die and start over every five minutes. We wanted to add friction that would slow you down, but we didn't think that there were rules to video games necessarily. So we'll pull out the dying and see if we could do it without that. He added in the same interview, I'd love to tell you that we knew exactly what we were doing, but we didn't. It was just another experiment along the scale of how to make things a little more sophisticated. And even within the game itself, you can see how we were expanding and building more cohesiveness into the worlds as we went. And so the brothers sat down and they began to write the story and work on world building. I think in our minds, said Rand in a Den of Geek interview, it does feel like we're building worlds and not necessarily games. We try so hard to create a consistent flow in our worlds. It's not easy. It takes a lot of effort to tie the environments with the story and the puzzles. It's not always perfect, but we make that attempt to make it seem viable as far as the world goes. And Robin added, and so we started coming up with Miss Backstory. And it helped to give us a better understanding of the entire world and maybe a better understanding of where the world should move on to for where we were going with it. We filled out all the details and thus the empty spaces in our minds. Rand would go on to say that the Lord of the Rings books by J.R.R. Tolkien were of particular inspiration to the world building of Mist. The Lord of the Rings felt like you're just reading one of the books, he would say, but the world was much bigger than that. It felt like you had a window. You were just experiencing a small window into a much larger world. And for some reason, that really resonated with us. That made those worlds seem so much more real to us. And so, when it came time to do our, our worlds, that's naturally where we land. We build backstory and wrap stuff around the family and what had happened. Stuff that didn't even need to be told in the little window of the mist game. But, our, but in our world, it gave weight, and I love that. So the entire team at Cyan also took inspiration from other places. Older games like Zork, the universe building of Star Wars, the concept of portals to other worlds, which is part of the story, came from the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. In fact, the title of Mist itself 
came from yet another inspiration, The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. The concept of the game, for those of you that don't know, is that players travel via a special book to a mysterious island called Mist. On Mist, you solve puzzles that allow the players to travel similarly to these other worlds, or islands. They are called ages in the game, and each age reveals the backstory of the game's various characters, and they help the player make the choice of whom to aid, because at some point that ethical choice comes into play. So there was also a lot of consideration put into the puzzles as the team designed the game. The Miller brothers decided early on that people don't really like puzzles. Maybe true. So a good so a good puzzle and their design philosophy is one that would feel familiar and part of the world. So as they saw it, it wouldn't necessarily be a puzzle, but something for players to figure out, like flipping a circuit breaker in a house when lights go out. They wanted to make common sense solutions that are found using observation and experience. Fair. So with all these concepts in mind, the Millers prepared a seven-page game proposal, and they submitted it back to Sunsoft with all these ideas. It was mostly maps of all the different islands or ages they designed. But with those maps, they proposed Mist, and they asked for $265,000, which was more than double what they felt it would take to develop the game. But just a side note, that was an amount, admittedly, that ended up being less than the game's actual cost. Oh. So Sunsoft took the proposal, and they asked the brothers if the game would be as good as the seventh guest. Now, the seventh guest was... We've covered the seventh guest on another episode. And at the time of this proposal, the seventh guest was already being shown in the public. It wasn't out yet, but it was being shown as a public preview. Uh, we covered that as episode 83, so if you want to learn about The Seventh Guest, which is a game I loved back when, go check it out, episode 83 on our website, www.memorycardlane.com. So Sunsoft asked the brothers, you know, is it going to be as good as The Seventh Guest? And the brothers said, yeah, sure, of course it's going to be. I mean, why would they say anything else, you know? So the Millers were given the go-ahead to create the game. But before they sat down and they started programming, there was one more step that they took as a team. The entire team at Cyan playtested the entire game as a Dungeons and Dragons role-playing campaign to identify any large issues with it before they entered full production. Huh. Yeah, that's pretty interesting there, Dave. I uh, wouldn't have guessed Dungeons and Dragons with this. I guess I'm going to have to learn a little more about this game. I mean, it's not a role-playing game. It's a graphic adventure. It's a weird concept to think about, but it's kind of neat that that's what they did. Uh, they they play-tested the entire game by role-playing it, a la Dungeons & Dragons. So, Huh, that's weird. It's important to know at this point that their investor, Sunsoft, they weren't interested in the PC market. They wanted the Millers and Cyan to develop the game for the console market. But at the time... Consoles had no hard drives and very small memory buffers. So the team worked to create their game around this concept. They knew this from the get go. So in order to make it work, that's why they had kind of designed their game around these islands or what are known as ages. In the original Mist, 
these are the Solonitic Stone Ship Mechanical and Channel Wood Ages. Just to, you know, not that those mean anything, but I'll throw that out there. Yep. So every game in Science Library up until this point was created using HyperCard, and frankly, Mist was no exception. They had hand-drawn all of their previous titles, but this time they decided to do something different. They toyed with the idea of using 3D rendering software, and they found that it worked exceptionally well with them. They were surprised by how effective 3D rendering was compared to you know manipulating the hand-drawn figures. And much of the development of Mist moving forward was all about overcoming all of the technical limitations to make everything work. You know, there were many hurdles that the team had to overcome. CD-ROM drives were still slow, so they had to go to great lengths to make sure that all of the game's elements loaded as quickly as possible. They added little details to texture maps to make sure they were believable because the texture maps they could use were very, like, basic. And if they were too basic, they wouldn't be believable. So with simple little things like screws on a wall, which made all the difference in the world. You know, what's crazy is hearing this, this much detail went into this kind of stuff. And some of the uh, developers out there now are flaking on this and big ones too. Yeah. So come on, come on. Yeah. I mean, but like, the fidelity is different. Does that make sense? I, I I don't know, Dave. Okay, so like the graphical fidelity, like the 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 when we moved from hand drawn to two D to three D rendering, and as three D rendering is giving way to photorealistic, the graphical fidelity is changing, and the way we approach that and we look at that is different, and that's kind of where that's coming from. Like back then. Those little details, they were used to make the world more believable because like we had to fill in the gaps in our brain because they just didn't exist because the graphical fidelity was so poor. But nowadays it's not. And so like, I I don't even know how to explain it. Nowadays it's just not. And they're just like, eh, whatever. Like they don't have, they don't have to, they don't have to, they don't have to basically, they don't have to because because there's, it's more obvious what things are, I guess is the point. It's because of the way 3D graphics and photorealism works, it's way more obvious what ways are. Now, with that being said, I agree with you. I think that the... I think that the... I think that the, the, the developers are being lazy. You know, those touches back then were more about not taking people out of the world. What you gotta understand is that, like, what made Mist so special was that you were in a 3D world. Like like this this and Seventh Guest were some of the earlier games for that kind of stuff. Like it they were some of the earliest world building games. And that, I mean that's you know, we'll we'll kind of get into that. Um, I think what's most important to me about Mist and the original Mac version of Mist actually is that it essentially functions as a series of like multimedia slides linked together by commands. So each age, which is own like hypercard stack, you can think of a hypercard stack as like a PowerPoint presentation. It had a bunch of slides. Navigation was handled by like buttons from side to slide. 
And there were quick time movies that would play that helped tell the story. Those quick time movies were like passed off to plugins. So essentially like it, like because hypercard and Mac isn't as well known anymore. The original version of mist was basically like a, a, a PowerPoint presentation. I mean, that's, that's essentially the easiest way to think about it. Cause that's literally what it was in a lot of ways. I mean, po- like, Hypercar, like, I mean, PowerPoint was a hypermedia, like, platform too, but in a presentation form, you know, and and Hypercard could be business, but you had people here using it for other ways. So, I mean, that's a good way to think about it. The original Mist was like a PowerPoint presentation. In fact, it had 2,500 still frames. That's one for each possible, like, area that players could explore. And for the game, they produced a total of 66 minutes of QuickTime animation to help put everything together. Wow. So knowing that, like, the technological hurdles that they were going to go over, obviously, like, the speed of the game was an issue. So they even went as far... I mean, this is something we don't have to remotely think about anymore, but this was a real thing back in the day. The team went as far to allocate files on the physical location of the CD-ROM drive in a manner so that images and movies that were closely related were close together to reduce the amount of time that the CD-ROM drive had to had to move from one place to another and reduce the delay as the player transitions from scene to scene. I mean, we don't have to remotely think about crap like that anymore. But back then, they had to literally physically tell the CD-ROM like where the tracks belong to reduce the 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 distance between them, you know, which is crazy and cool all at the same time. That's yeah, I don't don't know. You have, yeah, you don't have any concept of it. So, well, I know I I know CDs very well, Dave. I played games on CDs back in the day. That's true. Very true. But like, I just didn't learn enough about how they operate and things to like, because to my understanding, like, where a certain point on the disc was is where that data was stored. And I guess maybe if I'm misunderstanding what this is saying is that you can change the spot where it is and still just to get better like performance. Yeah. Well, CD-ROM drives were so slow. So they made sure that like videos from the same age were right next to one another, because if one was at the front of this, because it's like a spiral, you know, it, it, the way to think about it, kind of like a record, you know, you have the beginning of the record, you have the end of the record, that needle has to move. In this case, it's a laser has to move either from the outside of the disc to the inside of the disc. Right. Mm-hmm. And basically they would put all the, make sure all the files and videos from an age were right next to one another. So the ne- laser didn't have to go from like the b- end of the disc, to the beginning of the disc, because it would take longer to do that than if the files were right side by side with one another on the disc. So, they reduced the amount of time for transitions to load by manually telling the telling the production of the, the like where where the files belong on the CD-ROM, um, which is not quite how things work anymore. We don't we don't we don't worry about that. We barely worry about defragging our computers anymore because things are just like access is so fast compared to what it used to be. But that's how defragging used to work is putting like things next to one another and organizing it. So it's just a novel concept. And, you know, we don't, we, we, 
don't have to think about things nowadays. And back then that was something that they had to put effort into to, to eliminate, you know, or to reduce concerns over the technical limitations of the style of game that they were developing. So that was definitely a different time. Uh, absolutely. So Cyan play tested the game with two people sitting in front of it. They found that the two people would converse with each other, vocalize their likes and dislikes. And they sat behind the testers taking notes so they could like design on the fly changes and fixes. Among the things that they had to work through as part of this process is they had determined early on that they wanted the interface of the game to be invisible. They wanted to craft a game that the like a wide audience would enjoy. You know, as part of that design scheme and other things we talked about, they decided there would be no inventory, no enemies, no ways to die. And and this was just weird for gamers. You know, there wasn't no beginning or end and, and people took their time with things because there was no time limit. So eventually, like they had to include a save system. It was a concession to the fact that players took months to complete the game. Damn. Um, which was weird. I mean, arcade games. I, I mean, look, you and I played the Simpsons arcade when you visited. We beat that in what thirty minutes. Yeah. I mean, that's the way games. Were, that's the way people thought about games for the longest time. And now we're making games that people would finish in months. So yeah, it, that fact and save systems were a novel concept. So it was a newer concept. Probably you know, I mean, it would have come about in the eighties, but still. They hadn't planned on it. One of the other problems that they discovered with the story was that initially, like, players just got dumped into the world. There was no introduction, no inciting incident, just dumped in the world, and that was confusing. So in response, Cyan added a note early on in the game that clued the players into the existence of a chamber that um, inside the chamber there was a message that kind of explained the game's objectives. So... You know, they did make they did make some changes based on based on the feedback they got from playtesting. So they worked through the whole thing, through the whole development process. At some point, the notion of targeting consoles was dropped. So the game was originally released for Macintosh computers on September 24th, 1993. Now, Rand Miller recalls thinking that before the game's release, that selling a hundred thousand copies would be my would be which that, that would blow their freaking minds, you know. Frankly, he had no idea what he was in for, absolutely no idea. But you know what else is mind blowing, Rob? What's that, Dave? How easy Zencaster has made creating this podcast every week. With Zencaster, it's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high quality podcast right away. It also allows you to record up to 4K video with all of your guests. And with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you always have the highest quality recordings, even if the connection is unstable. And with Zencaster, you never have to worry about what you sound like. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums, ahs, ands, and removes those awkward pauses and conversations. You can set the right podcast loudness, and reduce background noise, all with the click of a button. And if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, just relax. Those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place. 
and then distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and just about every other major destination. So if you'd like to start your own podcast or want to take your current podcast to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use the code memory card lane and you'll get 30% off your first month of any of Zencaster's paid platform plans. Sign up for Zencaster today and you can experience the same ease in producing your own high quality podcast as we do every single week. Go out there and make the next great podcast creation. And speaking of creations, like I had said before, you know, the team didn't have very high expectations when they released the game. But the Macintosh version alone sold 200,000 copies in its first six months. Now, this would have made it one of the best-selling PC games at the time if it had been released on IBM and Windows computers, but to achieve that number in the much, much smaller Macintosh market was absolutely amazing. So needless to say, they began porting Mac... Mac? They began porting Myst to other platforms immediately. Myst was released for Windows in March of 1994. It sold more than 500,000 copies in 1994, and it surpassed a million copies before spring of 1995. And you'd think at that point, some, what, two years almost after its release, that sales would eventually falter. But in the case of Myst, they just kept climbing. It sold 850,000 copies throughout 1996 and 870,000 copies throughout 1997. I mean, Rob, think a game that's still increasing in sales in four years. Like, what does that, you know? Grand Theft Auto. You think Grand Theft Auto is selling as much now as it did back then? Oh, well, I guess if you put it that way, no, I was just saying a game that keeps selling year after year after no, year after year. I mean, year. there are lots of games like that. Minecraft, Skyrim, Grand Theft Auto, but they all kind of fall from relevance. And in this case, the year over year, Mist kept increasing its sales, which I which I if you look at sales numbers, I really don't think you'd find that's the case for modern games. I could be wrong. I Someone proved me wrong. So. Yeah, I couldn't tell you one, so I can't do it. By April of 1998, Myst had sold 3.82 million units worldwide. They brought Cyan World's $141 million in revenue. It wow. was the top-selling game, top game in the United States from March of 1994 until April of 1999. It's... It, that that's a total of 52 months as the top selling PC game. Has that been? Yes. Done? Okay. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. I don't think any game has sat there for as long as it does. I, again, I, I didn't even think to research that. I don't know for sure, but I mean, it's definitely not the best selling PC game anymore per, for sure. So, well, yeah, I know not anymore. I was just saying, is that the, record holder for months on top because that's pretty impressive it's really impressive yeah i really i really don't know uh and i don't think they count them that way it'd be interesting it'd be interesting to know that like i mean it's it's way down the list nowadays it'd be interesting to find out how that would stack up with like the minecrafts and pub pub g's of the world you know so 
Myst was the best-selling PC game throughout most of the 1990s, and it was the it stayed as pretty much the top-selling PC game until The Sims uh, knocked it off its pedestal in 2002. But to many, you know, quote unquote gamers, Myst was really polarizing. Some saw the game as nothing more than an interactive slideshow. Others called the game the ultimate anti-arcade game. Uh, it had no lives, no dying, no score, and no time limit. It was so much more relaxed and casual than pretty much any game seen since gaming started in 1972. Officially started, you know. But there was just something about it that resonated amongst people, many of which I would argue weren't there, there weren't many people that considered themselves gamers before that point. I think personally that miss the casualness of mist appealed to people that weren't gamers and brought a whole slew of people into the hobby i really genuinely do we had missed i mean it sold millions of copies it'd be surprising if we didn't eventually get it and i remember being in awe of it i i had never i had never seen a game i mean it was the 3d rendering was like amazing it was literally being dropped into a fantasy world and there weren't many puzzle games i remember before that you know i would have been 10 about when this came out so it was one of the earlier puzzle games i remember and i remember liking puzzle games like find and seek games and like trivia games like world in the world's carbon san diego so like Little inquisitive me loved puzzle games, and so Mist was pretty awesome. I never did get through it as a kid in any way, shape, or form. It was way too hard for me, but it was it was it was ama- it was amazing. Honestly, Mist was amazing. Have you gotten through it as an adult, Dave? I have. Yes. Okay. Yes, I have. So now we talked about the seventh guest as part of the story. Like I said, seventh guest was the game that Sunsoft wanted Mist to be better than. Definitely was. I mean, it beat the crap out of it sales-wise. But they're both great games. Seventh Guess is a great game, and Mist here, they're collectively considered the two single titles that accelerated CD-ROM growth in computers. Prior to these games, many computers didn't have CD-ROM drives. It was a new technology, but people weren't sure about it. But seeing these two games in action, and then they became popular, and then more and more people wanted to play it, they made people want a CD-ROM drive in their computer. So suddenly more computers are being built with them and people were adding them to computers where they could. So like there are always things that we count, like when a new technology comes out and it becomes popular, we're always things that we credit its adoption for CD-ROM drives. This is where the adoption comes from. In, in computers, I would argue that in consoles, like, you know, consoles just kind of did it with the PlayStation, but in computers is definitely these two video games. Aside from popularizing CD-ROM drives, which admittedly, they're really not a thing anymore in computers. There are many other things that are still popular that we can thank Mist for. It's very much the precursor, like I said, to casual games. Casual games are so commonplace in gaming today. Um, they can all trace their lineage here and pretty much all your like narrative walking simulators, like, uh, I don't know, Dare Esther and what are some others? I don't know. 
narrative walking simulators, they definitely all got their start there. And the puzzling genre better be groveling at Miss Feet. So many clones came out afterwards that helped keep that genre alive. You can take a look at so many modern puzzle games, like The Witness is one that comes right to head. And um, they are, it's really easy to see misinspiration in all of them. Now, I think that Mist is largely unknown by modern gaming audiences. Would you kind of agree, Rob, amongst you and your friends? Sure, Dave. No? Yes? Like, do you think any of them have ever played Mist? I really couldn't tell you if any of them have. I'm sure that there's one of my friends from college who has, but I none of them have ever talked to me about it. Well, so. I mean, to be fair, there was a Mist release last year, like a remake of it. Did you even know that? I had no idea, Dave. So, I mean, that just goes to it. You've got this incredible piece of gaming history that was remade in 2022 and nobody knows about it. So, I mean, I don't I don't think that Mist has very much relevance. And part of it's because the puzzle genre has no relevance anymore, to be fair. I mean, there's always going to be genres that people like, but it's just not a mainstream thing anymore. So. But it's a shame. It's a shame. It's a shame because it's an incredibly important piece of gaming history. It has being it's been ported over and over and over again. That original version. That, you know, Mac and then Windows and so on and so forth was ported to the Sega Saturn, the Sony PlayStation, the Jaguar CD, the Amiga OS, the CDI and the 3D old consoles. Got plenty of console updates in the 90s. In May of 2000, they updated the graphics and sound, and they re-released the game as Mist Masterpiece Edition. Later that year, in November of 2000, they published Real Mist Interactive 3D Edition. Real Mist features free roaming, real-time 3D graphics instead of the point-and-click pre-rendered stills of the original game. So everything about the game got a facelift. They added, they even added weather to Real Mist. By this point, there had been novels written in the Mist universe, which we'll talk about, you know, a little bit. So parts of the story were updated to align with the novels. Um, Real Mist got another age, which is essentially an extended ending for the original game. It was just an attempt to improve the game all over the place. But the truth is, is that Real Mist just ran poorly on most computers at the time, so it wasn't very well received. In 2014, it was remade in the Unity engine, got more facelifts and upgrades, and they re-released it as Real Mist Masterpiece Edition. Throughout that time period, we saw it get ported to other places on the handheld market, like the PlayStation Portable, the DS got a Mist release, the 3DS got another Mist release. The Windows Mobile market got it. The iOS platform, you can get it on your Apple iPhone. You can get it on the Android market nowadays. And more recently, Real Mist, the Masterpiece Edition, was released for the Nintendo Switch in 2020. So if you want to play it, it's really easy to find just about everywhere. Uh, I looked it up on Steam. The original is $6. The Masterpiece Edition is 18 but then there is one more interesting way you can play the game that I just told you. In September of 2020, they 
released a completely new remake of Mist. It was remade for high definition screens and virtual reality. So yeah, yep, that's right. It's on Steam for $30. The Island of Mist was brought into the middle modern age. It got its greatest facelift, facelift yet. You can actually roam the ages in virtual reality. Uh, don't fret if you don't have a VR headset. It can be played both in VR and non-VR. It was received very, very well. And to many people, it's kind of now the definitive version to play. Although there are some purists that don't like the arts, the, like the new art style. They say that it, it's too sterile compared to the original. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you want to play Mist, I guess if you're into casual puzzles, that'd be the only reason you want to play Mist. It's definitely out there and available for, for you. You know what I mean? It definitely is. There's numerous ways. So someone can't really give a whole lot of excuses there. No, I mean, it, it literally has been ported over and over and over again. So now Cyan Productions, now known as Cyan Worlds, they're still, uh, Still still making games. The story that they started in Mist continued through a game called Riven that was released in 1997. Cyan, after Riven, started working on a game called Uru, which was a massively multiplayer game set in the Mist universe. So the Mist series went on and was developed by other teams. Mist 3 Exile was developed by Presto Studios and released by Ubisoft in 2001. Ubisoft developed and published Mist 4 Revelations in 2004. Um, Cyan returned to the franchise for the latest game in the series, Mist 5 End of Ages, which, which was released in 2005. Now, the story of Uru, the multi massively multiplayer Mist, is interesting in itself, so I'll leave that for its own episode. But what you need to know is that Uru didn't really do well in the long term, and Cyan kind of stumbled through that time period. In fact, they had to briefly cease operations and like re restructure. In 2013, they actually used Kickstarter to get back on track. They used it to fund a spiritual successor to Mist and its sequel Ribbon, which was called Abduction. They turned to Kickstarter again in 2018 to fund a num another game called Firmament which inevitably released earlier this year in 2023. Um, the mystery make came, of course, like I said, in the middle of 2020. So they they're still making games right now. They are said to be working on a Riven remake. So they're still at it, making games in this genre. Abduction and Firmament are definitely like Abduction was considered a, a very worthy successor to Mist and Riven. So they're they're still good at what they do. If you're into the casual like puzzle genre, like this style of game, you'll like you'll like either one of those. As for the Miller brothers, Rand Miller is still the CEO of what is now Cyan Worlds. He's still involved with all the games. His brother Robin, Robin left Cyan after the release of Riven to pursue other interests. Uh, I hadn't mentioned that he composed, he's a musician, he composed the soundtracks for both Mist and Riven, and he went on to work on other music projects in the meantime. With that being said, he came back to compose the soundtrack for Abduction. And in 2013, he made his film debut by writing and directing a fictional documentary named The Immortal Augustus Gladstone, 
which is a story about a man who believes himself to be a vampire. One. Okay. I know. One last note. If you do fancy yourself a fan of the series and you want to delve into it more there, you should know that there is a collection of three novels that exist called the mist reader collection. Each book reveals more of the mist backstory by delving into the family around, you know, if you know mist, it surrounds one single family. Each book kind of delves into the family. Each one is like a prequel to the events of the video game. Now, they have tried to do movies. They've tried to do TV series. Obviously, we don't know about any, so none of it's come off the ground. I think the last time we heard about any of them was 2019. Who knows? You know, but they did, you know, between all the missed games and Uru, they have created this whole universe. It's called Denis, DNI, D apostrophe NI, Denis, Denis. I don't know. I, I should have looked that up. So they have created this whole universe and. And yeah, you know, they have all these stories to tell around it. And maybe someday someone will pick pick up the helm and 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 create more stories with it. So. And that is missed. That's missed. That is how a glorified slideshow became the best selling PC game for all of the 90s. Can't believe I missed that one, Dave. <laughs> man i was talking to ryan earlier uh who has been on our show a couple times and uh he was like i'm listening to an episode and rob cracks me up i was like what do you mean he goes he has no concept of anything uh pre-1995 and i was like well he was born that year so there's probably a good reason for that (laughs) nice how was the retort to that well i mean but it's different like I have a lot of concept of games that came out before I was born because we had the old stuff in the house. Like, Dad played games before you, like, back then. So, like, we had the Commodore and we had the Atari. We had a television. And, like, maybe we didn't play a ton together, but because he played them, I got to play them. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's fair. So I had a really strong basis in nostalgia. I don't think that you did. I mean, I, it doesn't seem like you did. I don't think you had a reason to, if that makes sense, too. You came in at, like, that perfect time when the technology of gaming was just, like, moving so fast and everything was new and exciting. And why are you going to go and look back at those boring old Atari games when you have, like, PlayStation, like, cutting edge, like, Resident Evil and, like, the 3D graphics that are and, and Super Mario and Smith. Like, you get what I'm saying? No, I, I completely understand. It was just, a, it was a completely different time period between when we were introduced to gaming. And I understand why you don't have a strong of a basis in it. Um, and some of this, like I learned as I got older, because obviously I have an interest in video game history. So I've, you know, gone back and played old arcades or <clears throat> emulated, you know, some games I can't find anywhere. <laughs> and What was that, Dave? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. So it's just different for us, but... Yeah, you do have like this big gap pre-1995 that that was brought up in conversation earlier. So, well, it should be of no surprise, Dave. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely of no surprise. So, well, you know, if you're interested in going back and checking some of those old games, um, we've done episodes on a lot of them. We've also done an episode on the other game that helped accelerate the 
popularity of CD-ROM drives the seventh guest. That was episode 83. And if you'd like to check out episode 83, you can do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people find on our website? Well, Dave, people can also find calendars of our upcoming episodes. Talk about some of the games that are on there with us. Let us know your thoughts on them or some little fun, quirky facts you might know about said games. You can find links to things such as our Discord, where you can come hang out with Dave and I, play some games, talk some crap, you know, just do what, do what friends do. Uh, there's also links to our Patreon, where you can listen for the price of $1 a month, support us, and you get ad free episodes and you get the unedited ones you get to hear all the ums and ahs and all the other stuff that zencaster removes oh and the and today was an interesting one because i i messed up a few times and coughed and said crap so yeah indeed it was quite the fun one yeah i'm gonna have a i'm gonna have a bunch more editing than i normally do that's the problem with like i try to get my crap together because the more i mess up the more editing i have to do and i'm gonna have plenty of editing with this one so Yes, indeed, Dave. You can also find links to things such as our social media, where I can be found on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. All right. Each week, we tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Wasn't that nice? No. <laughs> One of the best parts about doing this web pot webcast podcast week in and week out is that we learn things. When we teach you things, the research that we do, we learn things. So we learn, we teach, we teach, we learn. I love it. It's my favorite cycle ever, which is why I do it week in, week out. So as part of recognizing the teaching and learning cycle, we like to go around round table and talk about our biggest takeaways. So Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Obviously, I learned a lot. I had not heard of Mist or the series, known that it was so popular. But I think that the big one is I'd never heard of HyperCard prior to today. Fair statement. And that's Fair. that's an interesting topic and something that, like, while it's obviously no longer <laughs> really relevant, it's kind of like one of those things like, damn, how did they do this? That's pretty interesting. It's kind of cool. Well, you kind of when you grew up, the Internet was kind of a thing. Yeah. So the thought of an era before we had that, I mean, literally hyperlink is what we like. We think of Web pages like it's so commonplace now to have a bunch of text and links and video and pictures like that. That wasn't a thing. That wasn't a thing. And hypercard was one of the first times it was made a thing. One of the first times a language was successful, like one of the first times a hypermedia language was successful at it basically so yeah it's just pretty cool to know about that i i had no idea it was a thing and uh just doing a small amount of research into it while we uh spoke it's it's definitely kind of cool again it's it's always interesting to see what people are able to come up with and how they advance technology true statement very very true so that's my takeaway what about yourself this week dave it, it's honestly going to be something similar because I'd never thought about it much for much, much before, but I played the original mist. Well, I would have played the windows version, which wouldn't have been HyperCard because HyperCard was the Mac version, right? So they would have had to design an engine to bring it over to windows PCs. But the thought that the original mist was created on 
hyper card and that's essentially just a, a collection of slides like it makes sense in context and it's super cool to think that like the most popular pc game of the 90s the best-selling pc game for like seven years uh is like was just a glorified slideshow in the beginning like that's the coolest thing ever to like it's so it's so cool to me it's so cool to me. So um, HyperCard is kind of there, too. Also, I never knew that HyperCard was made well on an LSD trip. Those crazy those those crazy uh, computer guys in the 70s and 80s have some stories, I bet. So, hey, man, California is a wild place. It's very true. Very true. Very true. Very true. All right. Well, Rob, on that note, is there anything you'd like to add before I take it into next week? As always, Dave, I do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to all of our listeners. It means the world to us that you take this journey with us week in and week out, and we hope that we bring a little bit of fun into your day. So thank you. Very, very true. So next week, honestly, my favorite memory of next week is the music. How about you? I would probably have to say the same. Yeah. So next week, we're going to be looking at a game. It takes place in a 3D environment permeated by an ambience of punk rock and ska music. Funny enough, I just was playing some like I was playing my Pandora the other day and some ska music came on. And one of my coworkers, who's about the same age as you, said, this reminds me of Tony Hawk Pro Skater. I was like, yes, it does, because this was on Tony Hawk Pro Skater. So next week, we're going to be taking a look at the original Pro Skater. It's a skateboarding video game developed by Neversoft and published by Activision. It was released for the PlayStation on September 29th, 1999. So we're going to tell you its story and its development, how it came to be, all that good stuff. So join us again next week because it's getting harder all the time as we take another trip down memory card lane. Do you think? Doobin 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 do